Welcome to a Sustainable Wine Podcast with me, Toby Webb. I'm introducing here a session called In the Vineyard, Small Producers on Key Lessons Learned, Opportunities and Pitfalls in Wine. And it's part of the conference we held on the 26th and 27th of November called the Future of Wine Forum. This conversation took place on the 26th of November and our sponsors who generously supported the conference include British Standards Institution, Chateau Leube, Concha Itoro, DM France and Control Union. Thank you to all of you for your support of this event. And in the session, you will hear from Sally Evans, who owns Chateau Georges Set in Bordeaux, Will Davenport, who owns Davenport Vineyards, and Diana snowden Sisses, who owns Snowden Vineyards uh, and is a winemaker at Domaine Dujac. It's moderated by Jasper Morris, MW, and I think you'll find it an illuminating conversation. Please enjoy and check back to our website or search for Sustainable Wine for further podcasts. But there are small producers and there are very small producers. So I, I think probably we, uh, we have some of the same issues and challenges and opportunities, but perhaps there are some slight variations in that that we might see um, as we talk. So for me, when I took over the farming of the vines in 2016-17, um, I hadn't even thought about sustainability. I hadn't thought about certification. I hadn't thought about whether I wanted to go a particular direction. All I saw was doing what makes sense and, and, and common sense. And, and without putting it down, I think an awful lot of what we can do in the vines and in the winery is common sense and coming to it uh, with a pragmatic approach and thinking about um, how we would want someone to treat our land or, back, or backyard, as it were, um, then that can, can be a good guiding principle. So I obviously believe that vine and soil health are fundamental. Uh, the vines had been tra farmed traditionally, so I was working towards reducing any chemicals because I felt that that would be better for the, for the soil and the vines. That's intuitive. That's from, from not knowing specifically about viticulture, but just by being a grown-up person in this world. And I knew I wanted to give more than I took out. And I also knew that there was a, a very importance in terms of balance and getting balance back for pest management. So um, there were hardly any birds to be seen. There certainly weren't any bats. Um, and so how can they eat the insects if they're not actually in your environment? So really what I started to do was, again, common sense. I looked across the the, the vines from, from, from my back terrace and I saw just miles and miles of vines. So one of the first things I did was to plant hedgerow. I knew that if I was going to kind of deal with some of the snails, that perhaps I needed to encourage hedgehogs and so on and so forth. So it's very much a common sense approach. Um, biodiversity comes into it, as we've mentioned, adding some trees into that hedgerow. So in cover crops, uh, which uh, as a, probably people understand are put grow, uh, sowing cereals in the rows between the vines because they not only feed the soil but also help combat weeds and then um, really started to think about okay what are some other quick wins because um, some of the things that you do uh, don't cost you any money it's just a slight change in practice but other things do cost quite a lot of money and you've got a lot of choices uh, that you then have to make so um things such as um, not burning the vine clippings but shredding them and putting back into the soil doesn't really have much of a cost but the planting the hedgerow and uh, installing a water management tank which could be 10,000 euros is, uh, is a big big investment when you've only got three hectares so there's lots and lots of choices to be made 
And I think that very quickly what it became clear to me is that it's not only about the environment, because those are the immediate things you think about, but also it's about social sustainability and economic sustainability. Um, and so reaching out to neighbours, uh, getting to know neighbors. I was new to the area, so that was a fundamental um, helping the Franzac appellation to be more visible so that we can there, be there to be competitive as the new world gets more and more visible um, and other parts of France as well. Um, so, and economically uh, sustainable in terms of supporting my local suppliers, uh, local barrel makers, because if I go down, they may go down. So by supporting them with my business, then we are creating a much more sustainable economic system around what I do. So is that enough to start with? <laughs> uh, certainly given us a, a, a few pointers. Um, but, but maybe you would talk about the, the challenges where you're finding it really difficult to be sustainable. Yeah, um, I touched on the fact that I'm very small. I think economies of scale are a huge issue. Um, um, so putting it bluntly, if you're only going to make a small number of bottles, then your buying power is down in terms of uh, the bottles you buy. And I found that I'm, I'm actually making two wines and I found that the lighter bottles were more expensive than the heavier ones because of the, the numbers I was buying and the fact that I was cutting a pallet and so forth. So you don't have the economies of scale for buying. And so, you know, it became economically better for me to buy the heavier bottle now. You know, that obviously is something that we talk about. It was not a massively heavy bottle. Let's say this, this was 600 grams versus 500 grams or 450. But those sorts of things come in. So economies of scale are really important. And also, uh, like I mentioned, the capital costs. Um, and also, because you're very small, you're also at the mercy of your neighbours for some of the initiatives. So, for example, the um, the the uh, confusion sexuelle, where you put the little pheromones that emit into the vines to uh, confuse the male um, so, that, so that mating and, and, and eggs are not, uh, don't hatch. Um, that has to be done over a minimum of five hectares to be really effective. So you really are expecting your neighbors to also be part of that system because uh, it's not just about you. So that's a couple of, you know, a couple of the issues of being very small. And have you found anybody who has rather resented your sustainable uh, approach, um, bigger players who want to lean on people who might show them up? Um, to be fair, no. I think that's because uh, Franzac overall is really trying to do a big push on sustainability. So I think there's a bit of a leaning of the appellation on everyone. So that's great. And also, you have probably read in various communications that Bordeaux overall is really trying to do its bit. It's had an awful, you know, bad press in terms of chemicals and so forth in the past. And that is, they are really, really trying. So um, um, really aiming to have certification uh, for everyone, including um, uh, HVE, which is the high value environmental certification at uh, the, the highest level by I think it's 2050 for the whole of the Bordeaux region. So the big players are getting a lot of um, are getting a lot of pressure to to, uh, to to make big changes. We've got a comment on the chat from uh, Patricia talking about copper in Bordeaux. 
and the soil. That's going to be true for um, all our speakers and indeed all vignerons everywhere. Uh, is that something which is an issue for you personally? Um, no, um, in that we do use copper, we do use the, the, the Bouille Bordelais, Bordelais, Bordeaux mixture. However, we also, because I have not gone for the full organic uh, certification as yet, but we use, for example, some biocontrol products. Now, biocontrol products are those where they take what the plant would naturally produce itself to protect itself and use technology to reproduce that and put that back onto the plant. Now, uh, bio, there is a biocontrol product that can actually reduce the use of copper by 50%, which means fewer um, up and down by the tractor and also less copper. Um, and that biocontrol products is actually a bit of a bone of contention because you can find that it is allowed in organic, for example, in Portugal, is allowed in organic in Germany, but it's not necessarily allowed organic in France. So there are, that is a view that I have, that there are advances in technology which you can use in, con in conjunction with nature, which can actually help uh, be sustainable in a broader sense. Great. Thank you. Um, anything else you'd like to add for the minute, Sally? Otherwise, we will uh, uh, we'll let someone we'll else come back speak. to you later. I'll let someone else take Well, thank away. you. That was really uh, eloquently uh, uh, expressed. Thank you. Right, Will, it's your turn now. So tell okay. looking like from uh, sunny England. All right. Well, um, yeah, sustainability for us. We, we um, planted our first vines in 1991 and then went organic in 2000 so i had nine years of non-organic sustainability or environmental care has been something i've been non-supporting from the start really um and one of the reasons why we decided to go organic um and then about uh, maybe 10 years ago we started seriously looking into how we can reduce our environmental footprint um, and we have a winery as well so there's lots of aspects of the winery, but in the vineyard, um, that we've, we're trying to minimise everything in the vineyard, from pesticides to uh, tractor diesel to everything. So what, what I'm finding is that it's almost the case of the less you do, the, the, the healthier the soil is, you know, because you get less and you get less chemicals. We don't. Um, we started last year an experiment with a vineyard where we um, didn't mow the grass at all um, to see how how that affects the biodiversity in the vineyard. And um, and it's been absolutely amazing, actually, to see the explosion of life in, in terms of um, soil, insects and beetles and, and bird life and insect life and everything all through. Um, and I think for me, one of the key things about growing grapes is about caring for the because that's the medium that the vines grow in. And if, if you get that right, I think probably there's an awful lot of problems that you avoid having later on. Um, so we use, uh, we buy in huge amounts of compost um, from the council green waste compost schemes, which is allowed in the Soil Association organic rules. And obviously we don't use any herbicides. And... Um, and we're trying now, we used to cultivate beneath the vines, leaving the, the mid-row with grass cover, but um, cultivating underneath the vines. And we're slowly trying to do less and less of that, um, really to try and um, minimise the amount of uh, tractor work we, 
we're looking at it. And also, soil cultivation is quite damaging to the to the to the biology of the soil, and and also causes this release of evaporation of nitrogen and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as well. Uh, I think as a small producer, haven't got like um, Sally was saying about the economy of scale. We, we don't have the the funds to be able to do massive projects and um, you, you know buy electric tractors or anything like that. So um, um, what we're doing is very much sort of what we can do on a very on a shoestring budget. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we do actually um, involves putting in um, man hours instead of chemicals. Um, so we're going through the vineyard all the time, checking for diseases. We strip leaves off by hand. <laughs> if we see some powdery mildew or something, we'll, we'll put a load of guys in the vineyard to pull it all out. Um, and um, I think that's partly because we're organic. It's, it's one of the only options we've got. Um, and we do spray copper, let's say, um, and we're trying to minimise that as well. So we're doing experiments every year with different extracts to try and control downy mildew. And I'm, I'm not going to say we've found the answer. But, um, and I know the Soil Association are also doing some trials with um, things like licorice and willow bark and stuff like that, if that has any uh, fungicidal properties. I think the answer will be found eventually, but I think it's going to take a long time to, to get to a stage where we don't need copper at all. Um, so at the moment, we're, we're spraying fewer and fewer times a year. I think last year I did five sprays in the vineyard here in the whole year. Um, and we mowed the vineyard once. Um, and so when I, when I look at, um, I think actually, which I saw earlier this morning on another um, forum, is that, that um, people think that organic viticulture is, that they criticise it for the copper and also for the amount of tractor diesel used because they think we're cultivating weed control all the time. And actually, so we're trying to sort of avoid doing those so we can actually turn around and say, our tractor usage in the vineyard is as low as anybody else's. And if we can reduce the cop to a minimum, then um, that would, I think, help, help with the image of organic vines and the sustainability. Um, there's a limit in, in organic vineyards on how much copper you're allowed to spray and four kilos per hectare per year, not a lot. Um, and um, it, it needs careful disease management. Otherwise, that amount of copper just actually won't actually solve the mildew problem at all. Don't forget also that the UK has a very, very, very wet climate. Um, so it's probably quite a difficult place to, to grow grapes, even with chemicals. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is, is um, um, in, in, in general, um, my, my view on sustainability. And I think everybody has a slightly different angle on what they think sustainability is. So for me, it's about um, uh, reducing inputs and um, and, and waste. Um, so you're not you're not. Um, I mean, I was, thinking, I was just thinking this morning what we actually buy in in the vineyard, and it's basically compost, tractor diesel, um, and um, and fungicide, copper and sulphur, and everything else is, is generated on the farm in terms of um, trying to keep the place good and. Um, and so, if we can if we can reduce the tractor diesel, then that would help. And if we can also try not to create any waste, 
Um, that's the key from a small producer. I mean, if you if you're a huge and produce huge vineyard, you could probably do lots more amazing things that we just can't set up. And um, um, in in the winery, there's a lot more that we can do. And I wasn't really going to go into that in detail, but um, um, the argument about lightweight bottles seems to persistently come up. And so we have made our bottles as lightweight as possible, I think. We haven't been able to find nice bottles that work. Um, and, um, and we still use natural cork. Um, and we have um, tons and tons of solar panels on the winery roof and stuff like that. But um, the, there is uh, an interesting thing that very recently, sort of this year, the, the um, English Wine Industry Association, YGB, has started a sustainability scheme. Which, um, which uh, at the moment, we haven't joined it, rather embarrassingly, uh, because I'm sort of taking a watch and wait, look at it first to see how it gets off the ground. And it, it, as an organic producer, we're already accredited with the Soil Association and so I'm sort of seeing how the two mesh together and whether they work together or not before I make a commitment to it. Um, but one thing we are looking at over the next um, few years is trying to increase biodiversity in the vineyard. I think this this winter we're about to install 20 bird nest boxes um, and two owl boxes this year. And every year, because because of funding limits, basically every year we're doing little bits all the time. So it's not a, it's not a sort of the big grand project. It's consistently doing a little bit more every year um, and um, and we're also looking to try and do our carbon footprint measurements to find out where the weak points are and what we're doing um, I think yeah it's uh, it, it's tricky to, 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 to try and do everything and I think you know lack of funding as a small producer is one thing economy of scale actually are not, not so bad for us at, um, but the, the, we're a small team. There's only four of us, and we haven't got people that sort of who we can just hand a huge project to and say, "There, that's your job." Because we're all busy growing grapes and pruning. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think uh, hopefully that gives you a gist of what we're up to. Great. Well, thank you, Will. Um, there are various things coming up on the chat. Uh, so do please add extra ideas. I'll try to bring them all in at some point during uh, our hour that we have. Um, one question of mine, uh, Will, it's not feasible to um, prepare your own compost. That's not manageable on the scale you're at. It, 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 in theory, you could, but you need to have lots and lots of material to compost. I mean, you know, we, we've got um, quite a lot of land that isn't vineyard, so we could generate wood chip like that, but it's a time-consuming process because compost takes, even if you do it really well, it takes six months to compost. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's another job. It's another job that we'd have to put into our busy week. <laughs> it has to be kept, you know, properly and, and turned every how often and, you know, to make sure it, it generates enough heat. Um, we do take all the grape stalks and skins from the winery and we compost them and put them back on the vineyard as well. Um, but that's, that's not um, a big enough volume of, of material to be able to actually sustain the soil fertility. Right. Okay. And you're not keeping your own cows for uh, cow. We have sheep. Yeah, we have sheep. sheep. And actually, the sheep are in the vineyard at the moment. 
um, because the vines are dormant. So we, we've got sheep eating the grass at the moment. But, um, yeah, they, they, they're out of all sheep. So we don't have a cattle shed full of sheep manure. No. Okay, and one other thing which we'll talk about now before we introduce Diana is uh, from Bruno Le Breton. And he, uh, we've been talking about copper and you did mention also sulfur. But um, Bruno's question is about sulfur as the, the most used uh, product in the vineyard. How can that be sustainable considering its produce uh, comes from the petrochemical? Uh, it is produced through the petrochemical industry, though, of course, uh, not solely. I know there's uh, what we call uh, rock sulfur nowadays. But um, do you have to use, are you comfortable with the amount of sulfur you use, or do you think it is more than is sustainable? It's, it's, uh... I mean, this is the problem with growing grapes is, is that you, there are lots of diseases that affect grapes. And I think ideally we wouldn't be using any pesticides, but um, it's question of trying to pick the ones that have the least environmental damage really for us. That's my attitude to it. I know that you can look at where they, where they come from and how they're made. And I know that the sulfur we use is, is a manufactured product. It's not, mined out the ground and put in bags and given to us. And uh, um, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's impossible to be 100% perfect, I think. Um, so we'll, yeah. we'll try to minimize it as much as possible. And uh, just coming on to that, um, yes, now what about uh, your yields? Have they changed since when you went organic? Did that have an impact on your yields in either direction? Uh, yeah, our yields went up. <laughs> hey. I mean, we, we had, well, we had, because this is part of the learning curve, really. When, when, when we started and I wasn't organic, um, I, I'm not trained in viticulture. I was, I was probably in the position that Sally was in about four years ago. And I didn't really know anything about what I was doing. And um, um, so we didn't really look after the soil in terms of using any quality additives or anything. One of the reasons I wanted to go organic because we'd come to a stage where we had to either put some fertilizer in or do something because the vines were, were starting to um, lose their vigor a bit. And having the options, I thought, I'm not putting chemical fertilizer on the land. So we, that's one of the reasons why we decided to go organic because we wanted to look at, um, at that. And the Soil Association were fantastic at sort of helping me out with the learning curve. Um, and so once we started putting compost in and we, we put um, chicken manure in, Organic chicken manure now we add in into the compost mix. Um, so once we started doing that, we actually saw an increase in yield. But overall, um, most years uh, after the harvest, there's a, a UK wine industry sort of survey of how much people picked this year and so on. And most years we're we're roughly around the UK average yield. Great. Incidentally, when you start talking, Will, you'll be able to see on the chat there's a really helpful comment from Fred Loimer about the composting and uh, how to improve it and make it easier to do with smaller amounts. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I do hope everybody is following on the chat because... Uh, yeah, yeah. so we tried compost tea. We tried compost tea once and it, 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 it caused quite a lot of problems, actually. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. Maybe the quality of our compost wasn't good enough. <laughs> so, right. um, oh, we'll we have a chat with Fred after the show. Yeah. Take it further forwards. <clears throat> Incidentally, there is one Burgundian who is a vegetarian, was sort of vegan almost, uh, uh, who has found that with his compost, he originally was only going to use um, vegetable type compost. But it wasn't working for him. And he's had to in include horse, cow and chicken. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
talking of Burgundy, that's going to bring in Diana. So, uh, Diana, uh, I think you've got some strong things to say, both in what you do do and some things that you think other people shouldn't be doing. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, Jasper. Just quickly, I, um, yeah, I'm a California native and I grew up in the Napa Valley and on the property that my grandparents bought. Uh, we sold grapes for a long time. We didn't start making our own wine until the mid-90s. And I went to UC Davis, studied winemaking, didn't really think that I'd be working for my family. And I moved to France uh, in 01. I did a harvest in Bordeaux and then started working full-time where I now live in Burgundy with my husband and his family at Domaine du Jacques. And I had been living here a few years and utterly fell in love with the Burgundian approach to winemaking when I started commuting back to California to make wine for my family. And uh, one of the first things that I did, and it was really because of wine quality, was uh, convince my family to convert from uh, using chemicals to organics. And, you know, Burgundy did it initially because, well, there are a few people who did it for a few different reasons, but from our perspective, from Domaine Dujac, it was a quality choice. There were not yet the studies um, about the cancerous sides of glyphosate or the destruction it does to an ecosystem at that stage. And it was really because if what you want to do is express a site, then you need, uh, a then you need to stop using chemicals. And now we have all of the studies that say that there's this very complex uh, ecosystem in the soils around the root zone and a communication between the microbes that are living in the soil and, and the plant where the plant can tell the microbes what it needs and the microbes, oh my goodness, and the microbes um, why that. Corinne, sorry. Tu peux demander à Marc de arrêter? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all good theater. It's all good theater, Diana. Um, <laughs> terrible timing. Uh, and so I convinced my family. It took me, I started in 05. It took me until 2012 to give up uh, glyphosate. And when we did, it went from $250 for our 25 acres to 32,000 to remove weeds in 2012. So just to say that, you know, moving to organics is a heavy, heavy burden, especially if you are on a tight budget. And we uh, gave up the synthetic, uh, the synthetic um, fungicides in 2016. And there it's a kind of about timing and risk and not getting, not getting, not getting, not um, uh, uh, fungal diseases on the leaf area. And that's about timing and, and taking risks in terms of interpreting um, information uh, from spores, spores in the, in the atmosphere. So we, uh, we gave up all of the, all of the chemicals and, um, and it comes at a huge cost. And now uh, one of the things that are prime focus for me is climate change. And um, it was really the 2017 vintage in California where we had the horrendous fires. And I realized that, you know, California was dry when I was young and now it, it, you know, fires were always an issue, drought was always an issue and now it's reached proportions that are huge. 
And um, it's, you, you can just feel it. You can feel it in your skin, you know, when it's when you, that you're standing on a pile of timber and one little spark is gonna turn it into a firebomb. And so my focus for the last three years has really absolutely been on climate change and how to change and how to stop it. And that's primarily about carbon dioxide emissions. And so one of the great um, inconsistencies is that once we get to a point where we're doing carbon taxes, which is something we absolutely need to get to, uh, in order to, in order to uh, stop climate change. Well, when you do a CO2 emissions audit on your company, you're going to be told that you will have a lower carbon emission if you go back to chemicals and because you make fewer tractor passes. And so one thing that we're going to need to do as an industry is really prove what, uh, what, what we are starting to have some set studies showing, but really prove that living soils capture more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than those that are treated with glyphosate and systemic fungicides. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in the position as small producers, both um, taking the expensive choice not to use chemicals and getting taxed for it. So you, so either we're going to either we're going to have to make sure we make this case for living soils, or we're going to have to um, buy electric tractors, which is very an, an exciting development. And then we can have our cake and eat it too. But just to say that this is one example of how heavy investment is going to be necessary in order to transition into a sustainable future where we can continue to make wine from these places we consider so special. Um, so one specific thing, I mean the number. The number of things that require a large scale operation or coordination uh, with neighbors. There are a lot of exciting technologies that are accessible, but it just isn't possible on small scale. And, and both, both Will and Sally mentioned a lot of very creative things that you can do on small scales, which, which, which are fantastic and you do them as you can based on, on where you are located. And uh, then there are some new technologies that are very exciting and require really a budget and volume. And I, uh, carbon capture at the top of tanks is one of the most exciting developments and it's possible. And you could really offset your, your carbon emissions, but it takes, it takes some volume. One thing that I think is also exciting and it's doable for, the, for, for a small producer is biochar. So Sally briefly mentioned uh, the options that you have with your pruning cuttings. So mo many of us pruning cuttings, either they're composted or they're burnt. Unfortunately, that's done very widely in, in Burgundy and it's polluting. <laughs> Thank you, Jasper. This is a photo he took this morning between Moray Saint-Denis and Chambol. Um, and it's, it's a practical choice. And as you prune, you burn your pruning, pruning cuttings and it keeps, it keeps your team a little bit warmer and they, are, they come out from the day smelling a little smoky, um, but it's horribly polluting and it's a waste of a lot of carbon. And so I spent some time doing a study uh, to figure out what the logistics would be to evacuate your cuttings um, and it's essentially a second harvest. So for one hectare, you produce about two tons of pruning cuttings and, um, and it costs in labor just to take them out physically, it costs about 2000 euros. And that generates the equivalent of 600 liters of fuel. And that's essentially four times the cost um, in terms of heating that you would have to pay just to buy gas and combust it. However, if you take it one step further and produce biochar, 
you burn these uh, biomass in the absence of oxygen. If you plumb your furnace, so you're also heating a building, at the end you have this biochar, which is seemingly this magical <laughs> um, carbon-based product that you can put in the soil and it absorbs toxins and it increases uh, water availability and microbial activity and it does all kinds of wonderful things and there are a million other byproducts that you can sell sell biochar as well if you don't want to put it into your vineyards so that's just one example and then and then you have this this carbon molecule that is bound for a couple thousand years and not releasing the CO2 up into the atmosphere. Composting is wonderful, but just like um, everything, it's not carbon negative or so many things. It's not carbon negative because you're re-releasing those carbon molecules back into the atmosphere. And so when we're really talking specifically about climate change, you're looking at uh, what activities you have that are reducing, releasing CO2 into, into the air. So biochar is something you can do on low budget. You harvest the heat for your buildings, and then you have a byproduct that has added value. And you're getting closer to um, something, that, something that is um, economically um, interesting. Because frequently, sadly, frequently, all of these solutions, just, you know, just like burning your, your, um, your cuttings just for electricity, it's going to cost four times what it cost if we were just pumping um, fossil fuels out of, the, out of the earth and lighting them on fire. I mean, it's just much easier. There's labor involved and everything else. And so, you know, there, there are the good news is, and all of my research has led me to um, one very good piece of news, which is that we have all of the tools. It's just a matter of reorganizing everything from the bottom up. And some things are easy on a small scale. Some things are very hard on a small scale. You know, one thing that is easy is sticking up a solar panel. If you are creating your own electricity, um, it's actually much more efficient than having the flow of electricity come from far away because as soon as it's coming from far away, there's waste and there's loss. So um, there are different countries that have different um, support systems for solar panels. And in some areas, it's more interesting. It's, it's more financially doable than others. Um, but it's this balance of doing your own best, your best on a small scale, and then also grouping together collectively um, so that we can so that we can push together collect collectively in the right direction. Good stuff. And uh, <laughs> three of you have spoken so eloquently. Uh, we got some questions coming in too. Uh, there's one from Jonathan um, about how many liters of water approximately needed to produce one liter of wine in California, taking into account irrigated vineyards. I don't know if you irrigate there yourselves and winery water use. It's a good question. I don't have the data on that. Um, yes, we do irrigate. I, you know, I would love to dry farm. Honestly, I. <laughs> In Burgundy this year, in 2020, if we had had irrigation lines, we would have turned them on. It was the first year I have ever seen vines die of thirst. And um, so it really caused me to be somewhat humble about, about uh, irrigation and, and, and grape growing. Um, so 
essentially you, you just want to do your best, not over irrigate. And um, in the winery, there's a lot of water reuse and you can become very thrifty with water. If you put the things in place, you can capture the water after you, after you rinse the tank and reuse it on all of your tanks for a first rinse. And then you can filter it. The UC Davis uh, winery uses water seven times in India, the average person uses it 11 times. And that is actually low investment and doable. Um, uh, and the Berra Almond is uh, uh, where she can see what you've been researching, but is it in uh, a, a written shareable form or is it more your research is for your own? Sorry, which the, the UC Davis recycling water? Uh, but, uh, no, I think the comment came before that. It was uh, more to do with your general carbon uh, uh, yes, I have. Uh, if you go to Pro Porto Protocol, who is watching right now, I've done a couple. Um, I've couple talks with them, and I talked uh, about carbon capture on one of the talks there. And then on my on my own Instagram feed, I've done a talk about the carbon cycle. Um, also, Icy Lou, who uh, has started a podcast, I talked about carbon capture with her. There are a few places where this okay. is available. If you have a moment uh, after you finish speaking, Nana, then maybe just uh, put those on the chat so that people can oh, yeah. the names and catch up on that. Sure. Um, right, there are various uh, tomic, topics coming through, and uh, there's one which interests me, so well, let's throw it open, which is Nicole in particular, one or two following up on that, have been talking about bees uh, in the vineyard. Uh, my wife keeps bees as it happens, but um, I had understood that in fact, bees uh, don't pollinate vines. Vines don't require pollination in order to produce the grapes, but perhaps uh, uh, do any of our three speakers, first of all, have a view on bees in the vineyard? Well, I, I, have, a, I have two beehives <laughs> in the vineyard. Um, I, don't, I don't I have an opinion whether they I don't think they make a difference for the pollination of the vines, to be honest. Um, the other, I mean, we, we've done a lot of, um, of field surveys on insect population around, around the farm, and um, from my understanding of it, uh, the honeybee that lives in a beehive is, a, is only one of about 150 different insects that pollinate in this country because all the hoverflies and hundreds of species of hoverflies and the bumblebees, of course, as well, and uh, solitary bees. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I love keeping bees and it's great fun, but um, I'm not doing it to pollinate my vines, really. Okay. Um, I don't know if, in fact, we could bring uh, Nicole, um, if you want to unmute, and if you have anything that you, as you introduced the bee subject, uh, do you have a view on them at, either as pollinators or what other use they might have? So passionate about this. Thank you, Jasper, and thank you so much to the presenters, uh, Sally and Diana in particular, a pleasure to see you again. Uh, just on this topic, a very exciting breaking news because the, we've been stitching together existing research with the French National Research Institute and others, and uh, UC Davis, um, University of Sussex, and Claude Nidia Bourguignon, the soil experts, uh, to uh, first go back to these recent studies that show that bees do help vines pollinate up to 30% more. But second, and this is the part where I think everybody on this call will hopefully have similar experiences. If you bring in the bees, you increase your ability to uh, have your cover crops and move away from monoculture. Those cover crops in turn increase, of course, the habitat for the microbiome. The microbiome 
we know now is what helps transmit that sense of place and uh, the terroir, which of course then comes back through in the wine and in the geosensorial tests that these scientists have been doing, uh, it helps you to have more uh, unusual wines, interesting wines that reflect all the hard work that you've done to bring out that sense of place. So if you are in the fine wine game, which I know everybody that I recognize on this call is, uh, you actually make it back in the quality and the, the value of your product. So you've saved on chemicals, you've saved on, when you've done the math and we are doing that math and we want other vineyards to do the math as well, even with the extra help on the beekeeping front, et cetera, you end up net net saving money, helping bees, and making wine that has a better sense of place and having higher yields. Terrific. Thank you very much for that. But Diana, about to nip out and put a few beehives into... Uh... Um, well, we ha I, have, I have two and I've gotten Abigail's help. I have two in the backyard at Domaine du Jacques. Um, I you know, they have a very specific flying pattern and I, I don't know if we've moved them out of the garden but um, I think as much as you can increase um, biodiversity and that ch changes from place to place. I mean, my family, we have 170 acres and um, we cut down one oak tree when planting our vineyards and my father and uncle said never again. And um, so we have 25 planted and the rest is forest. And I strongly believe that both that forest around our vineyards in California and, you know, Burgundy is very a narrow band of vineyards. We have the forest above us and the, and the agricultural fields below us. But I do think that, you know, as much as you can, removing a row of vines and putting in a vines, a, a row of native plants is, it makes, makes for um, greater strength of the vine, which is difficult to, to prove, but I think you, you see it. Hmm. Yeah. So, I can just um, in that um, I don't particularly, I'm not necessarily doing anything with bees, but I do think that in a very short time, you can see a real difference in terms of uh, bird population. Yeah. Um, in only three years, yeah. we've seen a, a real multitude of birds and also the bats. Um, encouraging bats, that doesn't have to even be in a living thing. It can be in a barn or in a, a shed um, and actually having a bat colony, colony really, really helps also um, with bringing the balance back. Oh, that's interesting. I was just thinking somebody in Bone, and this time of year, one of the hazards is you have lots of uh, little uh, drosophile, the, the fruit, the vinegar flies around. And this particular producer had got a bat living inside the stone winery building, and it kept zooming over us as the, and sort of pinched the vinegar flies from in front of the glass. Really useful. I think everybody should get one of those. Absolutely. So, um, Will, what's the you really, really like to see other people around you doing or, or something else that you would like to tackle when you can? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said before, our, our sort of focus at the moment is on trying to improve the biodiversity in the, in the area. And um, I think it's going to take us years. Um, the, um, the the good thing is that quite a lot of my neighbours who have farms adjoining our vineyard uh, are now seeing what we're doing and going the same way. Not with they don't have vineyards. One or two of them are plant vineyards, but they seem to have become a sort of hub for organic farming <laughs> in the area, um, which is quite nice. 
if you if you try and do something um, to develop a project on a very small scale, we've got um, about about twenty hectares of land. Um, it, it works much better if you can do it on a bigger on a, on a, on a sort of hundreds of hectares. Um, so I'm, I'm quite pleased with that. The one the one thing that I've always wanted to do and never had the time to organise really is looking at our water consumption um, in the winery as well as the vineyard and um, and and um, trying to look at water recycling and, um, and rainwater production, whether we can use rainwater for washing in the winery, for example, and we can certainly use it for spraying the vines. Um, and, and that's that's my, my next big project that's been put in rainwater collection recycling system, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Diana, you, uh, do Jacques, you managed to capture the water and use it again and... Uh, well, we have done that in the past. I mean, Jacques has always been very ecologically minded. We've always had light bottles. He's always, you know, yes, captured it from the press pan and moved it into the tanks. We don't have any filter yet, which would be, which would bring it to a whole nother level um, where you can really, um, so if you, if you use dirty water for the first cleaning of everything. There's no reason to use clean water when you're getting off skins and leaves and stuff from a tank. So you clean one tank, then you move that dirty water to the next tank and so on. And then you really just do the final sterilization with, with clean water. You can, you can already have some, some water economies, but you can take it to a whole nother level um, if you start collecting the water and then filter it after and then you can use it again like I said seven times and that we have not put in place so far you know it's really for the dairy industry it makes sense because you're you have wine and tank all year long for viticulture and enology you only are using the winery um you know three weeks out of the year and you we don't even turn tanks so we're, we clean all of the tanks one time before harvest and one time after harvest and that's it so it's hard to um to make it make sense to buy a water filter just for two cleanings um so yeah we haven't done that but we do we do try to use dirty water more than once i think i had a freudian slip there i think you said for the dairy industry they have yeah, dairy no no <laughs> sorry I think you said wine in tank rather than milk in tank. Uh, well, yeah, the dairy industry is using, you're right, sorry, is using yes. their tanks every day or the beer industry. And yeah. uh, they don't have a season the way we do with wine. Yeah, I must yeah. sorry. Absolutely. Now, it is one of the issues of how much of the material that you require at harvest time, you are basically only using at harvest time and not the rest of the year. And then you could have buildings to store it as well and so on. Um, Sally, anything else that's particularly on your mind of, of, of what's next in order? Um, no, we've just invest, invested in uh, large uh, water tanks and not that we're filtering and reusing it 11 times, but we have got opportunities to reuse it. Um, and just on that point, for example, um, I think that as you're quite small, when you're small, you get very resourceful. Uh, you can be very nimble because it means you don't have to ask anybody else's permission to do anything because you just make the decision yourself and you're not involved in a big decision. And so, for example, this summer uh, where we had done some rinsing and had relatively clean water, we then used that. We pumped it out to uh, water the baby vines that you can water that you can water the first year of their life. So we were walking up and down with the hose pipe that we were pumping out of the tank and reusing that. But in terms of next steps, um, I would like to really do something around energy. 
I've looked at solar panels and unfortunately it will take me 10 years to get my money back of the investment. So that was not something I did three or four years ago, but I need to look at, uh, at energy um, because I think that is an area where I, I need to spend some focus. Okay, yeah. France does um, not really support solar panels, unfortunately. There's some countries where putting in solar panels, it does make sense economically. France is used to and no longer really supports solar panels. And it's very difficult when it takes 10 years to get the return on investment. I mean, this is not something we could pass on to the consumer in terms of accepting that in terms of price. So, um, you know. Yes. Well, it's quite fun ones nowadays so that, fo that follow the sun round rather than being static. Uh, uh, we, we put in solar panels probably more than 10 years ago, so we probably got our investment back on them already, which is quite nice. But... Um, at the time, the, the, the UK government were offering quite good grants for solar panels, which they're not offering anymore. Um, but also, if you if you look at a solar panel in a combination with battery storage, it works far, far more efficiently because the, the, the biggest problem with solar panels is that they generate most electricity in daytime, and it's at nighttime that you use it because you have the lights turned on and uh, all that sort of stuff. So it, until, we got, until we got a battery storage unit, it, it, it wasn't actually worth it at all, really. Um, ah, yes, yes. Now you have to have the complete uh, holistic version. Um, we've actually missed out on, there was some chat earlier on, which we've moved on beyond, but I want to come back to, which is to do with the no-till. Um, Will, you mentioned that one year you, mm. uh, or perhaps you mowed once, and it's beginning to become popular also now in, in Burgundy. Um, so uh, views on that from many of the three of you? Yeah, we, we had, I have a one vineyard plot, which is next to my house. So I tend to use that for our sort of more experimental ideas because it's um, easy for me to keep track on how it's working. And last year, we, we norm, most of our vineyards are normally mown, but then underneath the vines, we, we have a, a cultivated strip underneath the vines. And so with this plot last year, we, we stopped cultivating it. Um, and um, the vines are 30 years old, so they've got good deep root systems they can they don't have i don't think they suffer from the grass around them they seem to cope with it quite well and also in england we have enough rainfall to supply the vines and the grass so they're not going to suffer from a drought if, if the grass is taking all the water out and it worked really well actually and we, we went around and sort of hand weeded through it to, to stop like thistles taking over um right. and um i think it worked really well and, and compared to the other vineyards that we did cultivate on. And I, I mean, I couldn't see any difference in terms of the health of the vines, but in terms of insect biodiversity in particular, it was an enormous difference. Um, so we're going to try it again next year and see if it, um, if it, if it gets even better. Yeah. Good. Have you tried it, Diana? Well, I think the theory between, behind no-till is, is very exciting. The idea that, the, that it's really the funguses, the mycelia, that create these huge networks and go quite deep underground. And so that is those networks that mean that if you are not oxidizing those mycelia, they are a nearly limitless CO2 sink. And, um, and so that's the idea behind it. I think in practice, especially for viticulture, there are some circumstances where it's really very tough and, and if you are short on water, it's tough. And I think it's, it's in, in California, we have a problem with the voles 
these little underground rodents. And if you do absolutely no tilling at all, they will eventually come and girdle all of your wines by, vines by chewing off the cortex around the outside in, in search of water. So there are some reasons not to. Drought and voles are the big ones that come to mind. And um, I think that it's wonderful that, that it's getting so much attention and people are now starting to understand um, the carbon absorption capacity of soils through the no-till movement. But I, for vineyards, I don't, I, I think that um, as long as you're not putting herbicides into the water table, you're already a hero and you're already spending a fortune. And, and, and we do have to, we do have to do things that are economically viable. And um, if you can do it, great. If you can't, sometimes you can't. Yes, I, I think one of the issues is that, um, I, I don't know if you did this, no, you didn't do it, well, you, you did it once, but uh, the people I've seen who are experimenting with this in Burgundy is they're rolling the, the grass and whatever other uh, yeah. crop is grown, they're rolling it down so that it then dies of its own accord. So it's no longer competing uh, for a nutrient with the vine and it provides an automatic mulch as well at the end of the season. Um, so it does all seem to be uh, quite an interesting way to go. I must yeah. admit. And it's funny how in a very fairly short space of time, it's only about 20 years, we sort of convinced all the producers that they ought to be plowing rather than using herbicides. And now suddenly we're moving on to the, the next thought. Yeah. Encouraging yeah. to see this much interest and development. And um, uh, Sally can answer for Bordeaux, but I think the Burgundy is quite the happening area in this respect. And certainly Alsace as well and the Jura. Yeah. More thoughts from any of the three of you? And also if we have any, any final questions, we're going to uh, wrap up in the next two or three minutes, but if there's any other point that anybody would really like to get over, then now is the moment to do it. I think that the, the, the crimping roller thing is an interesting idea, but I, I've, I've never seen it used on grass. Um, it's normally used for sort of where you've got a, 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 a clover or a mustard mix there. I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you've seen it working with, with grass. I don't know if it works, but it's, um, it's a great idea. But, um, yeah. I was just going to add that um, specific for uh, very small producers like myself, um, that actually the wine production is not going to be uh, economically sustainable in terms of earning lots of money. And therefore, often other forms of income um, are important for that, uh, for that producer. So wine tourism is an obvious one. Um, and so just to sort of let people think that in terms of a vineyard, there are also other ways of being sustainable, uh, not only in the vineyard and the winery, but also as you... Um, enter other forms of uh, revenue streams such as wine tourism selling other products and so forth and that you can do other have other sustainability impactful um, actions in those areas too that all add to the whole sustainability in wine Great. And Diana a last word from you um, I, I guess I just repeat that um, after having really dug into uh, the question and gone through some phases that I found some phases where I was quite demoralized. The good news is that we have all the solutions. And I think that that is very uplifting. And I think that you pick and choose from them as you can based on where you are. And we will be moving in the right direction. So I feel quite optimistic, all things considered. 
That's great. Sally, optimistic or pessimistic? Oh, definitely optimistic, of course. <laughs> Good. Well, um, cautiously optimistic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Very wise. Hoping, I'm hoping, yeah. Well, something unique in the world of um, conferences is going to happen in that we started on time and we're going to finish on time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd like to thank the 140 uh, members who, who joined in. I've been utterly thrilled with what I've heard from our three panelists. Uh, I've learned so much. I've taken away a lot to go and research further, uh, be it bees and everything else. Uh, and uh, all I can say is I think uh, the future, the present and the future is in very good hands. So thank you all. Thank you.